This morning we arrive at John chapter 17. John chapter 17 provides for us the longest prayer that we have from Jesus in all of the Gospels, the longest one that is recorded for us. We of course know that Jesus spent nights in prayer, so there were many times that he spent in prayer. We don't know the exact contents of that, but this is the one that we have recorded for us that shows us his heart so very clearly. Uh, The way I'm going to work through it is kind of in three parts, or if you will, in three movements over the course of today and the next two weeks as we look at this just sublime chapter that is before us. Uh, I say this sometimes at risk of knowing what it may imply. I don't intend to imply it in any way negatively. We know that all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching and reproof, correction, training in righteousness, every bit of it, every word. But I can't help but realizing or thinking that as we come to a a chapter like this, a prayer like this between Jesus and his Father at a moment like this, that in particular we are standing on holy ground as we hear and as we read what is taking place in this conversation between the Son and the Father. Uh, We should heed the warning of uh, theologians who have gone before us into uh, this chapter and recognize that as we would expect a conversation going on between the Son of God and the Eternal Father is not one that we're going to understand every single bit, every single aspect of it. But what we'll do is as we work our way through it, we'll try and soak in all of the beauty and the grandeur that we possibly can from these words and and make the most of understanding them that we possibly can. So this morning, I'm going to read the first five verses for us. This is the Word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray together. Great triune God, we pray that in the words that I'll speak over the next few minutes, and in our hearing of these words, that we would glorify you. We pray that your name would be honored and lifted up in our hearts and in our minds, in every part of our lives, body, soul, every part of us, Lord. We yearn for your glory. We thank you for this prayer and for being able to overhear it. Jesus, we thank you for your love, for your intercession, 
on our behalf. And we pray in your name. Amen. Last year, uh, I think it was in September, we had an opportunity to be down in uh, St. Michael's where, you know, we love to go uh, to spend our vacations down on Maryland's eastern shore. And while we're there, we periodically, I don't, I don't want to call us antiquers in any way, but we do enjoy uh, going into a few antique stores and seeing what they have. And we were in one that we've been in a number of times, and I was charmed by, enamored with, and in the process of buying uh, a metal frog. Uh, I think it was a cast iron frog. Uh, it's about the size of my fist. Uh, I, I should have shown it to you guys yesterday as a point of reference for uh, the sermon today. Uh, but it was old, and it was, it, the paint was peeling off of it, and I was charmed by this little metal frog that I thought could look nicer somewhere out in the garden. And I got to into a conversation with the guy who was manning the counter that day. They kind of rotate through uh, between the sellers, who is the one who's actually uh, there that particular day and selling the merchandise. And we entered into a discussion about things that we had purchased in this particular shop or perhaps in St. Michael's in general over the course of the years when in the conversation he made a statement. And if I recall it correctly, he said it something just like this. He said, I perceive that you like heavy things. And, and it caught me off guard when he said it because it was true. I really do like heavy things, but I hadn't put it together before that moment. Uh, before he realized, I mean, had that, had that frog been light, uh, had it not weighed anything, I don't think I would have bought that frog. I was charmed by the frog because this little frog that fit in the palm of my hand must have weighed, I don't know, four or five pounds. And so, as it turns out, if you get me into an antique store, I am a sucker for things that are heavy. I suppose that uh, weight speaks to me of weightiness, of substance, of significance, of, of density, of value, of something that has enduring quality to it. I think it may be, and obviously this is a very different thing than the frog I was just describing, but I think it may be one of the reasons why I love this church building so much and have from very early days. Um, it's just, it, everything about it is heavy. Everything about it is weighty. When you look at it from the outside and you see all the stone that's involved in it, you can't help but see the heaviness. And when you come in, you feel the weightiness of it. And to me, that communicates substance and, and, and value. And, and I say all this because I regularly like to remind us that when we are speaking of glory, and clearly glory is at the heart of what we've read even in just these five verses here of this prayer, glory bespeaks weightiness. That's true with the Old Testament word, as I've pointed out for us numerous times, that the word that means glory is also the word that is used to describe something that is heavy. And when you're trying to communicate what glory is and what glory means, you communicate it by saying it is something heavy, it is something that is weighty. And it's true in the New Testament as well, particularly in visible force and clear force when Paul says, when he talks about the eternal weight of glory, 
compared with things that are uh, light and momentary, afflictions that are light and momentary. Glory is heavy. And it's not heavy, just to clarify, it's not heavy in the, this is a really heavy burden kind of sense of the term. I mean, after all, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Glory is not heavy in the sense that it is burdensome, but in the sense that it is that which is of quality and of value and of worth. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. That is a weighty prayer. Prayed at a weighty moment. The, we'll call it this. The heaviest hour of human history is upon the world, is upon the Son of Man at this very moment. Today, what I'd like to ask of these five verses is, first of all, what is Jesus asking in this particular portion of the prayer? Secondly, what's the basis of what he's asking? And then the third question I want to ask is, what's the end? Okay, what, what's the end? Why is he asking this particular, or why is he making this particular petition? What is the end for which he is asking this? So, let's begin with this. Let's begin with what Jesus is asking here. Put it in uh, evangelical parlance. What's your prayer request? What is the prayer request that Jesus is making of the Father at this moment? It is expressed in verses 1 and 5. Verse 1 said very clearly in just three words, Father, here's the three words, glorify your Son. Jesus is praying in this section of the prayer, glorify your son. It is expanded a little bit for us in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, those words in and of themselves are not complex words. Uh, we can understand what, what you're saying when you say the words glorify your son or glorify me. Of course, the question becomes what exactly do uh, they mean? What does Jesus mean by them in this context? And in order to take a stab at answering that, what I'd, what I'd first like to do is I'd like to get two things out of the way so that we don't have to see or be distracted by them before I try and come back with the answer to this. The first thing to get out of the way is actually going to be kind of easy. You'll get it, you'll see it pretty quickly. The second one's going to be a little bit trickier um, to, uh, to understand, but I think it'll lead us in a good direction. Okay, so first, if you or I were in a prayer meeting and we prayed, Lord, glorify me, there might be a little pause, there might be a little lifting up of the eyes and say, what did you just pray? If, if we said that to one another, if, if I, sorry, Jay, I know you just got back. If I said, Jay, brother, glorify me, you know, he'd kind of turn the head sideways and go, wait, wait, 
Wait, I'm not sure that that's, you exactly understand what you're asking here, but if that took place, we would recognize that that is an odd uh, self-interest. There's a lot of selfishness that might be going on there. It's a lot of self-centeredness involved in a statement like that, in a prayer like that. Here's just what I want to say to get it out of the way. It is impossible, impossible to call the Son of God selfish. He has come into the world in humility, taking the form of a servant, and he is about to lay down his life to save the world, to extend salvation throughout the entire world. It would be monstrous to even countenance the idea that at this moment, Jesus is being self-centered in some way. So, that's off the table. If you hadn't even thought of that, I'm sorry to have put it in your head, but now that it's in your head, get it off the table because that is certainly not what is happening here when Jesus prays this. Okay, here's the second thing that I'd like to get out of the way. And it's in verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus says, Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, if we just took this statement on its own, one of the things that we might note about this statement is that it affirms the eternality of the Son. The Son was not something who was created at some point along the way. This affirms that, uh, that great truth of the church. That there is no time when he was not the eternal Son of God. And so as the eternal word, as the Son, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is reflecting on at this moment and he's praying for the glory that he has had eternally. In his incarnation, Philippians 2 if you want to look at it later, in his incarnation he laid aside that glory, the glory which had been his from eternity past. But what he is not asking at this particular moment is he's not saying, Father, let's get things back to the way they were before. Jesus isn't uh, pining for, and he's certainly not praying for, the good old days of eternity past as if these in fleshed days that he has spent on the earth were just some kind of a really bad, awful dream that you want to wake up out of, you want to get out of it as quickly as possible and get back to the way things used to be. It's not some, he doesn't see this life as some kind of blip on the radar screen of an otherwise glorious eternal existence. And let me get back to that because this, this was awful these past 33 odd years. He's not asking for a return to pre-incarnate normalcy as glorious as that was. He may be asking for the glory, but he's not asking for the same state, and this will become clearer in just a moment. So here's what I want to say. He's not being selfish, and he's not saying, let's just go back to the way things used to be. So what is he saying? He is instead praying that the Father would put the final seal upon him as the faithful Son. Glory is the crown, it is the affirmation of his personhood and of his work, 
and namely that his personhood and his work have been faultless, without fault, and that they are complete. Everything that he has done is blameless, and he has done everything that he needed to do. Jesus always had glory as the eternal Son of God. The request then that Jesus is making is not to glorify him as the eternal Son. Instead, the request that Jesus is making is to glorify him as the incarnate Son. He is something now that he was not in all eternity, in eternity past. He is now the God-man. Every human before him had failed to earn that glory. We were created, right? Created, and God created us a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. You've got the crown upon you, but we took the crown and we cast it aside, and Satan took up the crown and said, great, I'll be the ruler of this world. If you guys are not going to do it, I'll be the ruler of this world. Every son Every human son before this son failed to earn that glory. Jesus comes to the Father and says, Crown me with glory and with honor as the one human son who has earned that investiture. If you recall back to a sermon series uh, now two summers ago, They were naked in the garden and they were not ashamed. But it was not finished. It was not finished at that point. It had just started. The idea would be of investiture, of the crowning, had they obeyed what the Lord had said to them, but they didn't. And now a son comes, a son comes who says, crown me with glory and honor. Glorify me. Because I am the human, I am the son, who has obeyed all that you have required of humanity. Jesus' prayer, then, is that the glory that belonged to him as the eternal son now be conferred upon him as the incarnate son. Make sense? He's making the distinction here in terms of who he is now and what he has accomplished. So, next question. What is the basis of that request? Well, the basis of that request is given to us clearly in verse 4. Here's the basis. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, before I explain this verse, we have to understand that Jesus is speaking here at this moment proleptically. Proleptically. I'm, I'm sorry, that is an unusual word. It's not one that we typically uh, use in speech or in writing for that matter. But proleptic means this. The representation, this is right out of the dictionary, of a future act or development as if presently existed or accomplished. In other words, It's throwing a loop around the future, 
pulling it back into the present or even into the past so that you can reflect upon it as if it has already taken place. We know that Jesus has his greatest work in front of him, right? The greatest work that Jesus has to do is in front of him. The entire gospel, his entire life, everything that he said is preparing us for the work that is in front of him right now, namely the work of the cross. But in making the statement, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do, Jesus is throwing a loop around the cross and he's pulling it into the past and he's now addressing the Father with full knowledge that he will accomplish that which has been set before him. It is as good as done. It needs to be done, but it's as good as done. You can count on it. You can bank on it. It's going to happen in the next few hours. So in this, Jesus provides his basis for the glorify me request. And we can look at it in two parts. What are the two things that serve as the base for the glorify me request? First, I, the incarnate son, glorified you on earth. If the chief end of man is to glorify God, and if you glorify God by loving him and by doing what he commands, then Jesus affirms that he has done that. And, and not only has he done that in his life, but he prayed it as well. Just a few days earlier, just a few days earlier, uh, a lot of scripture earlier, but a few days earlier when he came into Jerusalem, he prayed in light of the hour that has come, Father, glorify your name. And so Jesus now, before the Father, can say, Father, I have glorified your name. In particular then, he, he articulates how he glorified the name of the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Throughout the Gospel of John, or the other Gospels as well, but throughout the Gospel of John, this has been the assertion of Jesus that he always does the will and the works of his Father. He always speaks the words of his Father. He always does what the Father tells him to do, and he has accomplished it. That was, in fact, the calling to all of humanity and every person, every son, every daughter to this point has failed in doing all that the Father had commanded them to do. But Jesus did the work, and he did it perfectly, and he did it fully, and he became obedient, obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And at that moment, at the moment of the death on the cross, and this is most appropriate that we can find this in John, two chapters um, from here, in chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Proleptically stated here, finally stated two chapters later. It is finished. The work is done. It is accomplished. And by saying this, 
by saying, I have accomplished this work at this moment, by addressing that as a prayer to the Father, I have accomplished this work, Jesus is inviting, he is calling for a heavenly judgment on what he has done, on his life. He's saying, Father, my life is laid out before you. Look at it, examine it, consider it, there is nothing lacking, glorify me. Glorify me. Thus far then, we see the request, glorify me as the God-man, because I have glorified you by accomplishing perfectly and completely all the work that you gave to me as the Son incarnate. And then as we close up, we ask this question, well, to what end? Why is Jesus asking this? And the answer to that question turns out to be the most incredibly, wonderfully selfless reason there could possibly be. And we'll take it in kind of some parts here. It goes from the end of verse 1 through verse 3. Glorify your son that, in order that, so that, to the end that, the Son may glorify the Father. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify the Father. Now just note a little bit of the timing here. Jesus just asserted that he had glorified the Father. That's the basis of the prayer. The basis is, I glorified you. Now he says, glorify me that I may glorify you. I have glorified you, and on that basis, glorify me that I may continue to glorify you. Jesus is not looking to be a glory hog at this moment. The glory he seeks is a glory that he can return to the Father. The glory he seeks is not an end in itself. Instead, the glory that he is seeking at this particular time is the capstone of the mission that he has been given. And the mission that he has been given in the councils of, of the Trinity in eternity past, the mission that he has been given is the mission to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given to him. Uh, I suppose we could reflect for a while on all of the giving that is listed in this chapter and then moving forward as well. Glorify my name because I want to give eternal life to all that you have given to me. That's the mission that is before him. Now if the cross is the vortex of that mission where it's all going to come together and swirl together at that moment, then the resurrection is the vertex of the mission. The cross is the battle and the resurrection is the crowning of the victory. If the cross is the pit 
of the humiliation for Jesus, then the resurrection becomes that which is, at most points, the pinnacle of his exaltation, of his vindication of, now let's use the language of a te the text, of his glorification. In the resurrection, in the resurrection, the Father confers upon the incarnate Son glory. Glory. Glorify my name. Because in the resurrection, the Father is declaring, that's my Son. That's my Son, with whom I'm well pleased, who has accomplished all of the work that I gave him to do, and I certify it with the resurrection of the dead. Death could not hold him. When Jesus says, glorify me, he is asking for that all to be counted and credited towards the mission for which he was sent. With that glory, then, comes authority. I'm going to try and show you how this builds. The authority is listed at the beginning for us of verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. I want to put that in parallel for a moment to the Great Commission. Now, we all uh, are accustomed to thinking of the Great Commission as that which begins, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, etc. But of course, the verse that comes right before that is Jesus as the risen God-man, the risen Savior, saying what? All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's, that's what is certified in the resurrection. The Father goes, to you, to you, to this Son right here, all authority is given to you. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. Jesus has, proleptically speaking now, in his death and then in his resurrection, overcome the world. That's where John 16 ended, right? Take heart, for I have overcome the world. Well, he has overcome the world, and in the overcoming of the world, he has this authority. And in addition to that authority, he has power that is given to him as well by the Lord. And this is most I think clearly expressed in Romans chapter 1. Don't turn there right now. I will read it for you. Turn to it later. Romans chapter 1, the first six verses of Romans 1. Paul is talking about the gospel of God which was promised beforehand concerning his son. And he says this concerning the son. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. When was Jesus declared to be the Son of God in power? When did he, in time, receive authority and power? And the answer is, at the resurrection of the dead. When the Father pronounced, this is my Son, this is the one. This is the glorification. That is what Jesus is looking for at this particular moment. That that seal would take place. To what end? To what end? Romans continues this way. Paul explains the why of all of it. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about 
What's the, what's the purpose? The obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including all of you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. How does Jesus continue to glorify the Father, having been glorified by the Father? By the message of the gospel going out unto the obedience of the nations. That's the same, reason, that's the same logic of the Great Commission, right? The same logic of the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. Now go into the nations. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, that the Son... That the, the Son of God needed to be made perfect through suffering so that he may bring many sons to glory. The mission of Jesus is not just his own self-glorification, but in his glorification, the mission of Jesus is to bring many sons into glory as well. Jesus explains it in Luke chapter 24, it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer to enter into his glory. The suffering had to come in order to enter into his glory. And then Jesus in this prayer describes his purpose like this, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Giving you eternal life requires that Jesus be glorified as the incarnate Son. He must be exalted. He must be the firstborn among the dead. He must be the one who has gone before us, our forerunner into glory, who has been glorified, that he might raise us up with him into glory. Now look at the front of your bulletin. In the front of your bulletin is a verse from Habakkuk. You're probably not familiar with lots of verses from Habakkuk, but we are with this one. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus herein describes eternal life as knowing the Lord. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. That, that they, now let's combine Habakkuk with this passage as well, that they know you, that they know that you are glorious. Eternal life for us is in large measure defined by the fact that we know, we've seen the glory of God. That's where John started his gospel, right? We have seen him. We have seen him in the flesh, glory as of the only Son given of the Father. John chapter 1, verse 14. Knowing that is eternal life for us because there's nothing better. And let's be clear, when Jesus is talking about knowing or when Habakkuk or when in Hosea they're talking about knowing, the point isn't just knowing a little bit of information about it. It's this knowledge that allows us to enter into that glory, to rejoice in that glory. Hosea, the prophet, then exhorts us, let us know. Let us press on to know 
the Lord. On the foundation, then, of his God-glorifying, work-accomplishing life, Jesus prayed, glorify your son. Glorify me. So that he could glorify his father. Here where it all goes. By giving you eternal life. That's his purpose. That's his mission. The granting of eternal life, the fact that you know the Lord, that the covenant promise made to Jeremiah that they will all know the Lord from the least to the greatest, the fact that you know the Lord is a result of the Father hearing the prayer of the Son, glorify me, and answering the prayer, glorifying his Son, and then in him giving us life. How wonderful is that? How glorious is that? How weighty is that? You can't buy it at an antique store in St. Michael's. But if you could, it would be worth every possible penny. You should sell everything you have and go after the pearl of great price as a result of it. But you still wouldn't have enough. Glory for us had to be purchased by the blood of the glorious Lamb of God. And then given. Given to us as a gift to the glory of his Father. Here then, in light of that, the great words that we love from Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Great God in heaven, thank you for hearing the prayer of your Son so that in his glory is your glory. In his glory is our salvation unto your glory. For there's nothing better than that. There's nothing sweeter. There's nothing costlier. There's nothing more magnificent than your glory. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. We pray in your name.